0: First-time winners.
1: My dream in Formula 1 that is to win first a race. Obviously then a championship, but to win a championship you need to win a race. So I will keep chasing that. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's what I wake up every morning or what I go
2: to sleep with in my, my head every day. So I wish it can happen. Departing heroes. I feel a lot of drivers have a lot of talent. I think in the end it boils down to being... In peace with yourself, being happy in your life and being able to extract that talent when it matters. And it's got a lot to do with balance in life and life is bigger than those laps that you see on the track. Dominant champions.
3: We're an attacking team. We take on challenges. Best form of defence is attack. And I think that, you know, that's the same for every single race.
0: 2022 was a thrilling, fascinating, emotional year of racing. And we heard all about it on F1 Beyond the Grid. Hello, it's Tom Clarkson here, and this is the best of F1 Beyond the Grid in 2022. Whether you've listened to every episode this year or you're joining the Beyond the Grid team for the very first time, welcome, it's great to have you with us. F1 stars live life at 200 miles an hour, and this podcast is where they slow down and open up. Every week, you'll hear an exclusive, in-depth interview with one of the sport's biggest names. It could be a current driver, a legendary champion, an engineering genius, or a big team boss. You'll hear the people you've seen on screen talking in a unique way, telling stories, sharing memories and revealing things about themselves and Formula One. Those are the kind of moments we'll be hearing in this episode. You'll hear from Lando Norris on his quest for an elusive race victory, Nicholas Latifi on his struggles with Williams, Daniel Ricciardo on what went wrong at McLaren and many more illuminating insights. All of these clips are taken from feature-length episodes and you'll find links to those in the description to this episode if you'd like to listen to them in full. First, let's go back to the very start of the year. At the pre-season test in Bahrain, I sat down with Ferrari's Carlos Sainz. Back then, the red cars looked very quick. People were talking about them as favourites for the world title. So my question to Carlos was simple. If the 2022 Ferrari is good enough, are you ready to win?
1: Yeah, but I've been ready for a while, eh? for, my, for my first win. And I was having this conversation. About... I don't just
0: mean first win, actually. I'm talking, are you ready to win the world championship?
1: Do you yeah, feel but you've but got it? But first, the experience. to win the championship, you need a, a win, no, and, and you need consistent podiums. And I feel like over the last few years, I've shown or I've proved to myself even that every time I had a, an opportunity to score a podium, I I got it, no, and and even I had a chance to to win once or twice, and I nearly made it, no. So I'm I'm confident. I, I know you give me the right car, I think I can be there. I
0: think of... If- Gasly's win at Monza. That's the one that really sits in my mind, is the one that Carlos Sainz... Ah, oh, That, was, that maybe. was the
4: closest, huh?
5: Pierre Gasly leading a Grand Prix for the first time in his career. Carlos Sainz running in the top two of a Grand Prix for the first time in his career.
6: Carlos, you're second. No mistakes. Just keep it really clinical. Oh, want this
1: win,
5: on the last quarter of the lap, sliding through the Ascari Chicane. It's like watching his father doing rallying, but we're watching Carlos Sainz in Formula One. He's given it absolutely everything, but up ahead, Pierre Gasly is in front. Pierre Gasly wins the Italian Grand Prix! Carlos Sainz comes home for second
6: place, and what a great fight he gave. Oh, what a race, Carlos. P2. P2, I know you wanted the win, but you're P2, buddy. That's a really good result. Been, you've been great all weekend. Yeah, I don't know
1: what to laugh or to cry. Oh, oh, so close, but yet so far. One more lap. Only one more lap. Hi. Oh, Hi. It's how it goes sometimes. You, you need to have the luck on your side, and maybe that red flag there in the halfway through a race that I would have been on the lead without that red flag. I think no one would have passed me. Do, do you, like, you spend uh, a lot of time looking back, going, ah! Yeah, because I was genuinely the, the second fastest guy behind Hamilton that weekend. And, uh, and I was p to the whole race. Hamilton and Mercedes did this. This mistake of pitting under under the under the pit lane closed in safety car. And, uh, and I know that lead was mine and, and that the race win was on from there. And suddenly the red flag reset everything and, and through it uh, made my life a lot more complicated, but still made it back to nearly winning. Dare we even talk about expectations? If you and I were to sit down at the end of the season, what would satisfy you in terms of results? Well, it's difficult to tell right now, but I'd like to get a win. And then the rest, let's see. But, you know, I keep chasing the the my dream in, that in Formula One, that is to win first a race, obviously then a championship. But to win a championship, you need to win a race. So I will keep chasing that. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's what I wake up every morning. Or what i go to sleep with in my my head every day so i wish it can happen
0: well carlos did it it's great listening back to that clip now it tells you how much that victory at the british grand prix means to him it was the high point of his season but he wasn't able to build on it like ferrari as a whole carlos ultimately fell short in 2022 but 2023 could be different every driver on the grid shares carlos's dream of becoming world champion It matters so much because the emotions of that achievement last a lifetime. Just ask Nigel Mansell. 30 years ago, after finishing runner-up three times, Nigel finally learned how it feels to win the world title. For a special anniversary episode, he remembered the moment he sealed the crown in 1992. And he's up to the last corner now. As you cross the line in Hungary, can you remember now, 30 years later, what the overriding emotion was?
6: Disbelief. Is it really true? Have we really done it? Um, Emptiness, shock. Why emptiness? Uh, That surprises me. it's, It's the flash of adrenaline where everything stands still. You know, when something means so much to you, and you think you've actually done it and achieved it and you spent 40 years of your life attaining that, it's, uh, it's the most um, amazing, amazing feeling where everything's in slow motion like there's no tomorrow. And I think where that emptiness comes from is, is the overwhelming relief. You can't finish the race, you've won the championship. Is it real? Have we done it? You know, you're questioning yourself. So I think basically what happens, I think your brain upsurges to a point that your brain fuses. So when it fuses, there's emptiness <laughs> because you can't compute
0: anything. <laughs> <laughs> and Nigel, I guess that sense of disbelief, emptiness, call it what we will, is a reflection of, of the near misses. Those three near misses, I guess.
6: Yeah, yeah, I, I think a lovely story there I have to share with you, with the late great Sir Surly Moss. Sterling came up to me, um, I think it was uh, my 17th or 18th Grand Prix win or something, and Silverstone, he said, hey, chap. He said, uh, thank you so much. I said, oh, hi, Sterling, how you doing? He said, brilliant. He said, you're the most winning most driver in the history of Formula One, never to have won a World Championship. I said you bastard <laughs> I said that's rotten that that is he said no he said "That it's on you now he said you've won more Grand Prix than me and not to have won a world championship so he was bridesmaid four times I was bridesmaid three times so I was very pleased when I won again at Silverstone <laughs> to win the world champion well Hungary when I won the world championship I handed it back to him when I saw it next I said Sterling you can have your accolade back now mate and i cannot repeat what he said to me. <laughs> it was it was it was very colorful very very funny and uh so sterling was a marvelous man marvelous man
7: nigel mansell by finishing second and getting six points is the world champion of 1992 and frank williams is
0: winning. With-
2: at Frank,
0: it's been five years since you won the World Drivers' Championship, how does it feel to be there now for that brilliant effort?
2: pissed off it took so long,
7: Jonathan, quite frankly. <laughs> now that it's here we've a bit, especially for Nigel. Nigel, three times runner-up, luck has always seemed against you and now you've finally done it. And some people said you would never do it. What do you say now to those doubters? Well, I think they're wrong. <laughs>
0: They were wrong about Nigel and he did win his world title and he's rightly proud of it all these years later. In that special episode, he also talked about the epic Monaco Grand Prix where he tried to pass McLaren's Ayrton Senna in the closing stages for lap after lap, but didn't succeed. It's well worth a listen. On the eve of the 2022 season, Haas suddenly needed to find a new driver after terminating Nikita Mazepin's contract. They called on Kevin Magnussen, and in the first race of the season, he showed he was the right choice.
5: Magnussen, a brilliant fifth on his
8: return with the Haas team. Oh, uh, oh, oh man, thank you. Kevin, that was Thanks. some waking f- comeback.
0: Kevin came back to Formula One after a year on the sidelines, and he told us how that changed his attitude to
8: racing. The year I had out felt like ten years. It felt like so much stuff happened. When I got back in the car, it didn't really feel like I'd been out for very long. But you know, when when I look at the other stuff that had, uh, happened outside of the track, it feels like a long time. I think having a kid certainly gives you. It, it moves around on all your priorities in lo- life a little bit. I think uh, suddenly some like Formula One is is still super important but it's not the most important thing in your life something else is is more important like your your family is more important and the life outside of f1 you know related to anything with your family that life is is the most important and you know before it it wasn't you know formula one was absolutely the most important thing and i i thought like happiness was one-to-one related to to f1 that's how it felt you know and if it wasn't going well on track like my whole life was (laughs) misery and and it's not like that anymore you know i i could like it feels very different i feel does that make uh, you a better racing driver yeah i think so i hope so (laughs) it certainly feels like i'm able to to enjoy it more i feel like it's all just like a bonus you know it's all like just a, a gift somehow um and I can just have fun and losing F1, like having that slip away and and uh, having closed the the chapter on F1 fully mentally, makes it a little less scary now. You know, I've I've lost it, and and I felt fine with it, you know. And now I'm not scared of losing it. I, I hope I'm not, I can have many years in Formula One from now on, but. Um, but I'm not scared anymore, and I think I don't think it's good to be scared. I think it's way better to just be happy and grateful and then you know not have any fear and that's kind of where I am now i'm I'm very relaxed and I know I know what I'm able to do you know i I feel like uh, I know my capabilities and I, and I feel confident with that and and so you know'm there's not anything that I'm really worried about. It's always fascinating to hear
0: drivers explain how their off-track life affects their on-track performances. Kevin says he's not afraid of what lies beyond Formula One anymore. A year out has given him a perspective on the sport that allows him to push even harder on track. Was that why, on a wet track in Brazil, he was able to push fearlessly and put his Haas on pole position? In the full episode, Kevin talks a lot more about his family and how he came back to Haas. We've also had his team principal Gunter Steiner and his father Jan Magnussen on the podcast this year. Why not check out those episodes over the winter? 2022 was dominated by Red Bull Racing thanks to the driving of Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez and the performance of their awesome racing car. The RB18 won 17 of the 22 races. But back in the late 1980s, McLaren had a car which was even more dominant. The MP44, a red and white rocket ship, won 15 of the 16 races in 1988. It was driven by Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna and designed by American Steve Nichols. Steve is a legend of F1 engineering. I asked him to cast his mind back to his incredible creation's first laps. He remembers that expectations were very high. We
9: arrived at Imola then uh, late in the evening. The test followed the next day and, and there was some bigwig from, from Honda there, a very stern sort of guy and we met in the lobby at 11 o'clock at night and he said, uh, so tomorrow we find out about this wonder car of yours and I thought what the hell are they expecting you know what sort of story has Ron been selling them? You know so yeah, I start to worry then about what the next day was going to bring so we start off the test and we did the, the we did the usual thing where they go out and do a, an installation lamp and as usual
0: the, the who, the, who drove first
9: Prost did uh, you know he was the established team member and all that. So he did the installation lamp and there was nothing wrong, and there never was. You know, the mechanics were always so good. I don't remember ever having a problem on the installation lamp. but anyway. So then I said to him, maybe, maybe just do... You know, I was worried about mechanical problems or any one of a hundred things that could happen. And so I said to him, maybe just go out and do five gentle laps, and we'll have another look. So he went out, did five gentle laps, came in, they had another look, nothing wrong, put some fuel in the car, and... I just thought, well, this is it. I'm out of excuses. So I said, uh, all right, have a go. Uh, So it was the old Imola where there was a fairly tight chicane at the head of the pit lane. And and he came around the right-hand part of that chicane and just buried the throttle and disappeared out of sight off to the legendary Tamburello. (laughs) And I had my... uh, Heart of my throat a little bit, hoping that everything was going to be all right. And, and it was immediately fast, you know, and well-balanced. And we made a few little minor changes, but it was just kind of
0: What was no his problems. first comment to you when well, he came back into the pit? He, he, he said,
9: yeah, you know, he just said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Maybe we can make a little change. And we, we did two or three. Uh, runs where we'd uh, try to balance the wings a little bit the usual stuff balance the roll bars a little bit We didn't have a lot of time and uh, lunchtime came and we thought well We'll put Senna in the car now and we'll let him do some longer runs You just want to get some mileage on the car. I think we ended up doing a hundred and something laps in the day but I remember Senna he, he was a bit more reactive I guess than uh, then Prost, but he came in, did his first run, five laps or something. He came in and he he just sat there, silent in the car. It seemed like a couple of minutes, but it was probably only fifteen or twenty seconds, you know. And then um, he just looked stunned, you know, and he and he just said, "This car is gonna be effing quick." I <laughs> well, use the real comment. words. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was his first comment.
0: Senna was right. Steve Nichols' McLaren MP44 is still, in percentage terms, the most dominant car in F1 history. There's much more about the car and its drivers in the full interview with Steve, and you can check out highlights of the 1988 season on F1 TV. The McLaren MP44 was way ahead of its rivals, but now let's talk about one that was behind the frontrunners for most of this year, because one of the big stories of 2022 was the performance of Mercedes. With its narrow bodywork, the silver arrow didn't look like the other cars on the grid, and it wasn't as competitive as Ferrari and Red Bull either. After years of leading the field, Mercedes stumbled. At the end of the fourth Grand Prix of the season, team boss Toto Wolff felt the need to apologise to Lewis Hamilton.
10: Lewis, hi. Sorry for what you have. Needed to drive today. I know this is undrivable and uh, not um, what we deserve to score as a result. So we'll move from there. But I, this was a terrible race. Yeah,
3: no worries. Just, just uh, keep working hard.
10: Yeah, we will. We
9: will
0: come out of this. Undrivable is not a description that Mercedes technical director Mike Elliott would have enjoyed hearing. He and his team in Brackley designed that car and he gave us a fascinating insight into its problems. We look back and you look
11: at how we developed the car and I could point to one moment in time last year where we did something that I think we made a mistake and what you're seeing in terms of performance at the track and the way it swings from race to race is a consequence of that and that's a mistake we've known about for a little while and it's something we've been correcting Um, and that's why our performance has gradually got better but it's not something that we can fully correct for a little while yet we will do over the winter can you tell us a little more about that mistake i can't tell you in the details technical <laughs> detail because that's something we wouldn't want to give away but i can tell you that these cars are complicated and in order to get to the right solution you have to get the best out of vehicle dynamics aerodynamics tires the way the chassis works mechanically and when you make these compromises they're, they're technically difficult When you look at this year's car versus last year's car, they fundamentally run in a completely different way. You know, they run close to the ground. We've obviously seen the problems of bouncing. And so making that transition from what we were doing last year to this year, we got something
0: slightly wrong. They say you learn more from difficult moments than from success. So trying to think positively about your current situation, are you better off for 2023, having been through the experiences you've been through
11: in 22? I think on the car side... I think if we're brutally honest with ourselves, when you win eight world championships, it's really easy, not, not to be complacent because I wouldn't describe it as complacency, but to have the failure drives you again. You know, you, you remember why it's so, what you got from winning and what it's like not to win. And I think that gives you a sort of a sense of drive and a motivation to go on and find that next gear and that next step. Because I think in Formula One, the world never stands still. You know, you're constantly evolving and constantly trying to get better. And so is the competition and having the sort of motivation that comes from not winning, I think will be key for us for the future. I think for me personally, I think the challenging time as a technical director is when it's not working and to get that done now means that if I can cope with this, I know I can cope with anything that's going to get thrown at me. And I also think it's also been great for me to learn personally about me and how I deal with those circumstances. I think I've learned a lot about the team of people that work for me and about how they deal with the pressure of not winning. And I think that's going to be really helpful going forward. While it wouldn't have been the year I would have chosen, it has been really useful. Mike
0: Elliott said that in October. He was pretty sure that Mercedes wouldn't win again until 2023. But then, at the penultimate race of 2022...
7: George Russell, you are a Formula One race winner. Woo!
5: Come on, team! One, two, unbelievable, five! George Russell, a Grand Prix winner. These are just the beginning,
0: guys. These are just the beginning. George Russell finished the season with his first F1 victory. It crowned a year which saw him visit the podium on eight occasions and beat his seven-time world champion teammate Lewis Hamilton in the final standings. Yes, Mercedes say Lewis's work developing their troublesome W13 sometimes compromised his performance. But take nothing away from George. His first season at Mercedes has been a huge success. He had to get used to a new team, a new car, new ways of doing things and a new race engineer in Ricardo Ricci Moscone. But in June, George told
7: us that it didn't feel like a first year with a new team. I think what's helped me a huge amount was being part of this team when I was a junior driver. I used to go for dinner every single race weekend with Ricky and the, the other engineering gang or the marketing department. So knowing that you were joining the team or was this even before? No, this was this oh. was before back this was in just hanging out. This is when I was a junior driver and reserve driver. So back in 2017, 18, um, I'd be going to all of the events with Mercedes as backup. And on the evenings, I'd be hanging out with the team going traveling with them in the cars in the morning i think that made things so much easier when i joined this team because i already felt part of the family but ricky's um such a great engineer he's got so much motivation and and hunger to um push us to the top of our game and and get absolutely everything out of our car so it's you know it's great to work with with these guys
0: and i guess you've been working with toto very closely since you became a Mercedes Jr. in 2017 but how has that relationship changed now that you're one of his race drivers
7: It hasn't changed a huge amount It's been really intriguing for me to see how Toto is involved on the technical front because um, firstly I, ne- I never quite knew how good his technical knowledge was, but you know he is fully Involved in all of these technical meetings, he's really trying to push the whole team. And he, you know, he's a racer at heart. And I think having a leader who is not only as um, inspiring as he is and motivating, and you know, everybody is clear what what a great leader Toto is, but who also understands the technical side of things and can look at things a bit more rationally maybe um from afar but actually asking the right questions it goes a long way what about his driving have you raced him yet he thinks he's a bit of a driver (laughs) (laughs) I, I actually have to be honest we did an ice driving event at the start of this year in Austria uh we were with a load of sponsors and the day finished at six and Toto and I stayed until nine uh it was pitch black but we had lights on this um we was driving a little rally car at the time unfair advantage he's done some rally well exactly exactly so he was doing some laps i was a passenger and i had my iphone out on the stopwatch uh and then vice versa and to be honest i was pretty surprised at the pace he was uh, the commitment and pace he was showing there was he probably went off a few more times than i did but the pace was was pretty strong so yeah, learning learn new stuff about him. Well, please please tell me that you were faster than him. Yeah, I was fast man, okay. but he he <laughs> claims that I did track limits on I uh, cut the inside of a couple of corners, so he will probably claim that he was faster than me, but Whatever it takes, Toto. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now look, what sort of a boss is he? I mean, is he generous at giving praise if you're doing a good job?
7: And equally, what kind of a bollocking does he give? He's not one to praise 24/7. He's not always going to be bigging you up always and he'd always uh, make a couple of jokes like I remember um, when I qualified second at Spa for Williams he'd actually just told me that I got the drive three days before and we'd had a few chats and then he called me on a Saturday night and he said that was all right but I thought he was going to be on pole so you know it's it's, That's it's a wind-up it's it? uh, <laughs> No, maybe it, no. Of course, it was a wind-up. but that, that was it, you know. And that's um, that's his sense of humour. For him to say something like that, I know, I know what he thinks deep down, and I and I know that he was seriously happy with the performance. So he 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 does it in in certain ways. As such, obviously, he'll always pat me on the back whenever whenever needed. George and Toto Wolf definitely have a great relationship.
0: When I spoke to Toto at the end of the year. I asked him about George's debut season. Have a listen to the full episode to hear more on that. 2022 was the year George and Carlos Sainz became F1 winners, but the wait goes on for Lando Norris. A podium for McLaren was his best result of the year. It was the only time a driver from outside Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes finished inside the top three. Some achievement, but he wants more. In Lando's second Beyond the Grid appearance, we look back to a wet weekend at Sochi in 2021. A stunning lap in qualifying gave him his best chance of victory so far.
7: OK, uh, pole position, mate. Pole position.
5: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God! Let's <laughs> go!
12: The most nerve-wracking the most risky in a way you know because it was what we just decided to go on to slicks for the first time and you have one shot you have one chance to achieve it and um yeah every single corner like literally every corner you break later than you ever think you wanna just because you think someone else is going to try and break late i've got to try and outdo them and you think that for for everything you think someone else is going to try and do a better job than i can here um, so you push every limit you push the entry you push the brake. in the line you know the line was so narrow if you put one wheel too tight you lock the inside you go off one wheel too wide the outside wheel with all the load gets wet you're off in the wall probably pretty hard every single corner i felt like i risked everything but uh it paid off i would say in my career in terms of like a proper accomplishment nailing a lap and everything that i've learned coming kind of coming into it that's the one i would say i'm definitely most proud of oh, lando that that was a race you should have won. I don't, I I don't want to dwell on I the know. near misses, but do, do you dwell on it still? Uh, I do at times. Those closing laps? Yeah. When the rain came? Everyone threw everything at me in this race and I just wasn't meant to be.
5: This man, Lando Norris, you really do have to feel for him because this could have been win number one. Without the rain, it would have been win number one. And after the disappointment of Monza, where he finished second to his teammate, it was his career best finish, but it was still disappointing. This is going to be utter heartbreak for Lando Norris and for McLaren.
0: So we've established that you coulda, shoulda, woulda won a few races by now. The fact that that hasn't happened, does it play on your mind? Do you worry
12: that you won't get the success you deserve in Formula 1? There's the one thing I think of is, was that my only shot? And I, I hate thinking it because I also want to believe, like, as a team, we're going to be winning races in a few years. But you never know in Formula One, which is the issue. You never know where you can be or what can happen. So there's a couple of times where I just thought, mm, was that my only shot of winning a Formula One race in my, my career? Is that what people are going to speak about in 20 years? Oh, you should have won that race in Russia, blah, blah, blah. That's the only thing, but I, I think that very rarely, probably two or three times, I've thought of that. But the rest of it, I still see as as a team. Two or three years, that's when um, our times will come. Long term, I have the faith that we can achieve things to, uh, together, and I think that will make things sweeter than just joining a team which has a chance of winning races. You know, I think um, the story of me being with the team since whatever the revolution of everything um, in terms of McLaren. Changing a lot of things with, within the within the team, and and being in that point and getting to eventually winning races, I think that makes it a much cooler story than just joining a team that can that has a car that can win races. Um, and I think therefore it'll mean more. Since
0: 1950, 772 drivers have started an F1 World Championship Grand Prix. How many of those do you think are race winners? Well, let me tell you, just 113 only 15% of F1 drivers actually win a race. Lando definitely has the talent to join that club. His more immediate target is to beat his rookie teammate Oscar Piastri in 2023, who I hope will come on the podcast next year. You'll hear from F1 stars of the present and future on this show, But we also remember the legends of the past. In 2022, we marked 40 years since the death of Gilles Villeneuve. His flat-out, all-out style of racing may not have won him a world championship, but it won him legions of fans in his native Canada and Italy because he raced for Ferrari. In a special anniversary episode, Villeneuve's friends and teammates shared their memories of him the 1978 world champion Mario Andretti remembers Jill
4: as an adrenaline chaser both on and off the racetrack. Nothing that we've ever done was conventional. We're in Austria at Klagenfurt on a lake and uh, we're doing the parasail. And uh, so I said, Jill, um, I said, uh, you wanna do a parasail, you know, tandem? So we did a tandem. And everything that we did was awkward because he tried to spin this thing around in such a way that it was, you know, it was quite dangerous. But you know that was his style, and he was all, you know, okay, you know that that's what we do. And and then when we when we dropped off, we're supposed to drop off, you know, at one at a time. Now we drop on top of each other, trying to kill each other by the time we hit the water, you know, all of that. So, I mean, uh, what a guy, what a guy.
0: Mario, when I say the name Gilles Villeneuve,
4: what do you think? I smile, quite honestly, and the reason for that is since the first minute that I met him, when he actually had the opportunity to drive a McLaren, I think at Watkins Glen, uh, it was just, he was so nonchalant, and typical of his character, And, you know, in sense, I said, isn't he even a bit nervous? And that was Gilles.
0: It was so lovely to hear Mario's memories of Gilles and that he was so loved and respected by his peers says a lot about his character. French racer René Arnoux was close to the Canadian as well. And together, they staged one of our sport's
13: greatest ever wheel-to-wheel battles. When I see him the first time, I think it was in uh, '79 when I started in Formula One. And uh, he was driving for Ferrari. I was driving for Renault. And uh, suddenly he said, uh, Gilles said to me, uh, Rene, you go with me to eat uh, Italian food in Ferrari. And the next day Gilles go with me to eat uh, French food with Renault. And, uh, We continue in the same, always in the same condition in each weekend. Uh, Gilles was uh, in his life, private, on a track. uh, When he was driving, he he drive at the maximum. He he drives his life at the maximum, 100% each laps. He used the car at the maximum of the performance of the car. He used himself as the maximum of the performance. Now, I want to ask you about uh,
0: one of the sweetest battles I have ever seen in Formula One, and it's the battle between you and Gilles for second place at Dijon in 1979. Can you talk me through the battle?
13: Yeah, I said always about these battles. uh, It it was possible, is my opinion, eh? between uh, Gilles and, and me. Why? I know that Gilles don't make a mis- bad mistake for me, and he know exactly the same. I don't make a want to make a mistake for him. I try to finish second, I finish third, but uh, he tried to finish second, and he finished second with the condition of, the, of this car. But during this uh, war on the track in Dijon, it's very honest, not bad things, not uh, etc. And after, the, when we finish uh, on, a, on a flag, to finish the Finnish flag, uh, and we have the podium and everything said, these two guys now, it's a, it's very, it's a war on, on, also in, on the podium. But uh, then he take my hand and we, we have a big smile when we finish the race on the podium. It was really exciting. It was the best race in my career. Uh, why? Uh, because it was between Gilles and me, and between my best friend and me. Do you still think of Gilles today? Oh, yeah, yeah, sh- sure. It's, for me, it's always in one part of my head. Uh, this is sure. Each day, five or ten minutes,
0: I am with Gilles. Rene remembers 1982 and racing his friend Gilles like it was yesterday. It's also great to hear his memories of Mauro Forghieri, the pioneering Ferrari designer of the 60s and 70s, who passed away in November. There's lots more about Gilles the man and the driver in that special anniversary episode. Back in 2014, Susie Wolff made her own piece of Formula 1 history. At that year's British Grand Prix, she became the first woman to drive in an official F1 session for more than 20 years. You've probably seen Susie on TV. She's on Drive to Survive and she's often in the F1 paddock being interviewed or in the Mercedes garage with husband Toto. Her racing story is fantastic and I loved hearing her talk about those laps with Williams at Silverstone.
14: I knew early on in the year and I have to say the team did a great job of preparing me well. I had... A lot to to prove um, to get the opportunity. And I was very diligent in my preparation because I knew an opportunity like that doesn't come across uh, very often and I had to grab it with both hands. So I knew very early on which racetracks I would be given the opportunity and I knew exactly what I wanted to achieve.
0: What did the engineers want from you in that free practice session? What was the brief as you went in?
14: Number one brief, do not under any circumstance crash the car, (laughs) (laughs) which which I completely understand. But, you know, I had my supporters in the team also who were very keen for me to go out there and show what I could do. And I felt that. I felt a lot of support from within the team. And I obviously wanted to show what I could do. I didn't want to just be out there on track. I wanted to show that I was quick enough. So it was a balance between obviously pushing, but making sure I didn't crash the car.
0: What was Frank like to deal with in that situation? He always loved racing drivers, didn't he? His eyes lit up whenever he talked about racing. What did he say to you before and after?
14: I think after it was probably more just relief that the car was back in one piece and there wasn't any issues. Um, But I was also lucky that Claire was was playing quite a pivotal role in the team at the time and she was very supportive, um, but she also expected performance. I mean, in the end, it didn't matter if I was a girl or not, when the helmet went on, I'd been given this great opportunity and there was an expectation that I would deliver.
0: Susie did deliver, not just in Formula One practice sessions, but in the German Touring Car Championship and as a team boss in Formula E. It was also interesting to hear how much she lives the highs and lows of Formula One alongside Toto. She's very close to the whole Mercedes team and even raced Lewis Hamilton in go-karts. I asked her if Lewis is still the same person today as he was back then.
14: He absolutely is. And I have no reservations in saying that. You know, just two days ago, we were reminiscing about something that had happened in the karting days that we had remembered. And if I haven't seen him for a while, the first thing he does is ask me how my parents are, John and Sally. And we reminisce a lot. Um, I watched some of the races together with Anthony, his dad. And he's absolutely um, the same, but... I just have so much admiration and respect for Lewis, what he's achieved, how he manages his life to be the best possible racing driver um, that he can be. And for me, which is incredible to watch is just how deep he can dig in moments of pressure. And I didn't have that uh, to that extent as a racing driver, but he has an incredible ability in the car and out of the car you know i'm inspired by lewis as a racing driver but also as a human being and and obviously i see some of the negative comments around what he does and um, how vocal he is in different areas but you know what it takes guts to be different and i know that to a lesser extent because i was different always in the paddock and it's easy to be the same as everyone else it's easy just to rock up race leave and not worry but he has the guts to be different, to stand up and to use his platform for other causes. And I think that's also got to be commended, um, because the easier route is to do nothing.
0: Check out the full episode with Susie for more about Lewis, Toto and Susie's own racing story. When Susie drove for Williams back in 2014, the team was on a high, regularly scoring podiums and points. That wasn't the case in 2022. The car was very difficult to drive and the team finished last in the Constructors' standings. Results like that often lead to drivers losing their seats and that's what happened to Nicholas Latifi. Nicholas came on the show shortly after learning he wouldn't be racing for Williams in 2023. He put us in the driver's seat and gave us surprising details about why he struggled so much. And he was brutally honest about his failure to match his teammates.
10: I was obviously really struggling a lot with the car, and I, and I still am struggling with the car. Alex has had the same struggles, but he's been much more comfortable with the car. It's not that he thinks the car is the the, the best thing he's driven either. Uh, you know, even with the cars last year, George and I think it's fair to say he always felt you know a little bit more comfortable driving those. And um, you know, when things fell a bit more my way, and I and I had the confidence I needed, you know, I could be as quick as. Either of them, let's say uh, with the respective things, but they were just able to extract that performance more more consistently. You could say arguably that maybe you know it exposed a, a weak a weakness of mine, a weak spot of mine in a, in a way maybe similar to I mean I was reading an interview from Ricciardo the other the other week and he was obviously being quite open about his struggles and relative to the Lando and you know every driver will have a, a specific feeling they like to get from the car to drive fast.
0: What are you not getting from the FW forty four that you need?
10: I mean, to to be honest, it's not just from this car, it's even with, you know, it's with all three cars I've I've driven, this one was definitely the biggest step backwards for me and what what I needed. It's my driving style. I've always tended to attack the corners under braking and I kind of create my own, uh, I create my own front end because of that, because I like to trail brake into the corner. So people don't know what that means. It means I like to carry the brakes to the apex of the corner and I really brake late most of the time at the expense of maybe some minimum or exit speed but i always try and find that right compromise so because i create my own front end i I often need a stable car on the entries of the corner whereas the williams has never been stable on on entry and uh, then to top it off to make it even worse our our car is very weak at um, let's say combining steering and braking which everyone up and down the paddock will do because you always combine a bit of steering and braking but for our car as soon as you start to do that it's it's almost instantaneous how quickly you lock up the the front wheels and again there's only a few drivers who who have driven the Williams cars in the past three years that could say just how off-putting that is.
0: When you look at the data of someone like Alex Albon in this year's car, what's he doing differently?
10: He's able to take a far more unstable car than 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 I can, and that's to his credit. I mean, he's he just has a much better feel of what the car is doing when, it, when it's over the limit uh, and, he's, and he's happy to play with it on that limit and he's happy to go, go over the limit much more and much bigger snaps to the point where it's like, well, if, if I'm feeling the way I feel with the car, that unpredictability, if I did that, well, I'd probably be, be off the track and again, that's credit to him so. and, and, I, and I do feel in a way George was similar, it's just the car was slightly more together in the previous two years which is why I was uh, obviously relatively closer to George than I was, than I was to, to Alex but... So, again, arguably, you could say my window uh, of, let's say, where I like the car to be is maybe not as broad as, you know, what a guy like Alex or a guy like George can take. I was just never able to get that feeling with the Williams car. It's as simple as that.
0: I hope Nicholas finds a seat in another series, maybe IndyCar, as he hints at in the full episode. Meanwhile, in Formula One, 2023 will be the first full season for Nick DeVries. It's something I've
15: been dreaming of my whole life walking towards a very long time and it's been a, a long and tough journey and to kind of
0: get the opportunity to fulfil that childhood dream yeah, is just great. Nick and I spoke just after his place on the grid with Alpha AlphaTauri was announced. He's a Formula 2 and Formula E champion and he put himself in contention for an F1 seat with an incredible debut performance at the Italian Grand Prix for Williams. Nick DeVries is going to score for Williams in ninth position. Cracking job from DeVries. Let's listen in to the radio with Nick DeVries. Wow, wow. Points on debut. As Nick and his father left the track after the race, they knew he had a chance of a lifetime. So on Sunday evening,
15: we drove back to Monaco and on uh, Monday morning, we woke up together. We went to the beach because I live opposite of the beach and uh, we just put a towel on the sand and went into the water and stared in front of us and enjoyed the moment. But the phone just kept going. And we're from the north of the Netherlands and people see us as farmers. But we're also very grounded. And I really wanted to use the momentum and the buzz that was happening to conquer and create an opportunity for me in Formula One in 23. So quite quickly we went back to yeah, reality.
0: What was the first move? Who made the first move? Was it Dr. Marco? So we were obviously in
15: close conversations with Williams for a longer time. And uh, I spoke to Jost on on the Tuesday after the the weekend. The Alpine test was always already scheduled. It was scheduled way before Monza. Actually, I went to the Alpine facilities just ahead of Spa. But then I had dinner with Max on, on Monday evening in Monaco to kind of celebrate and just have dinner together and we talked about it openly and um, about the possibilities and opportunities and and then we, we talked about potentially, you know, Alpha Tauri, Dr. Marco and, and um, yeah, that's how it went and later that week I was uh, obviously seen in, in Graz and I spent two days in, in Austria.
0: How did you find Dr. Marco? Because he's, he's a hard taskmaster.
15: We had a, a great time together. We spent two days eating Austrian local food, talking about the future together. Uh, he has a good sense of, of humor and, and we respected each other. And I think he appreciated me, yeah, for, for being there, representing myself and having the conversations with, with him um, directly. And, and, you know, Red Bull is all about performance and, and winning. And um, I I, I share that. So um, it was very straightforward
0: and and enjoyable. And you knew in those two days where your future was going to be?
15: Well, obviously, it was not entirely uh, in in, in our hands. Uh, The the, the deal was a bit more complicated, as everyone understands. But basically, that trip made me understand that, yeah, there there was a very good chance that
0: I could be on the grid uh, in 23. It's brilliant when talented young drivers get their chance in Formula One, and I can't wait to see how Nick and the other 2023 rookies, Logan Sargent and Oscar Piastri, get on in their first full seasons. Nick's not just joining AlphaTauri, he's joining the Red Bull family. And given their success in recent seasons, that's a good family to be a part of. Well,
3: thanks for stepping. You are world champion. We are world champions. Thank you so much. And... Thank you, Dietrich Mateschitz. These championships are for you.
4: Thank you.
0: In 2022, Red Bull pulled off a double for Dietrich Mateschitz, the co-founder of the team who died in October, just before they added the Constructors' Championship to Max Verstappen's second driver's crown. That Red Bull would win both titles looked likely even halfway through this season. And that's when I sat down with team principal Christian Horner. He looked back on 2021 and how the team rolled from one championship winning year into another.
3: 2021, we were operating at an incredible level and we finally got a sniff of putting a challenge together for a world championship. And, uh, you know, that was a 22 race, like a championship bout. It was a heavyweight fight from, from race one to you know, race 22. And I think what's been particularly pleasing about this year is despite the colossal regulation change we had to undergo going into this year, and honestly, we thought that we'd probably compromise this year by putting everything that we had into, into last year, the team came up with an amazing car, with a supercar, and you know Max has just made another step. The, the racing between him and Charles, I mean, think back to Bahrain or Saudi or you know, some of those early races like Miami. I mean, there was phenomenal racing between the two of them but not not once did they ever touch each other
10: do you
0: think max races charles in a different way to lewis I, you know there's a difference
3: there's a perhaps a different respect uh, with charles they'd race each other since kids and there was a mutual respect i've never once ever heard lewis recognize max's ability and so of course there was just a bit more needle to it and you could feel that and you could sense that between those two drivers
0: now, Max can win the world title as early as Singapore next week. Do you think he'll approach that race similar to the 16 that have gone before? Do you think we might see any tightening up, doing anything different?
3: I doubt it very much. I mean, Max's best form of defence is attack. And
0: <laughs> I think you and Max are quite similar in that way. Well,
3: that's the, the DNA of this team, that you've got to go for it. And, you know, we're an attacking team. We, we, we take on challenges. Um, you know wholeheartedly and and that's part of the culture of you know if you go defensive you, you know you're conceding something best form of defense is attack and i think that you know that's the same for every single race you know that we'll compete in for the rest of this year and then the championship tables take care of them themselves but i mean max has had some amazing races this year you know as a and uh you know it's not by accident he's got himself into this position
0: what motivates you the lure of success or the fear of failure?
3: I think it's both. I think what drives you on is to experience that feeling of seeing your cars cross the line first to see your driver lift the winner's trophy, to see him become world champion, to see your team achieve the ultimate of becoming constructors world champion. And and it's that fear of failure that, again, is a massive motivating factor. And it all depends on the type of person and type of character that you are.
0: Christian's bullish, isn't he? His style of leadership is very direct, and he'll need to be strong again if Red Bull are to retain both World Championships in 2023. As Christian says, Max Verstappen raised his game to win his second title. He'll be racing to make it three in a row next year, and in the other car, Sergio Perez will hope he can put up a stronger challenge of his own. And then there's Red Bull's new third driver, who'll be working and supporting on the sidelines. One Daniel Ricardo. I spoke to Daniel after the final race of a difficult season with McLaren. While Lando Norris scored a podium and consistent points this year, Daniel struggled to get to grips with the car. I wanted to know why he'd struggled at McLaren, why he feels taking a year away from racing in Formula One is
16: the best thing for him, and whether we might see him back on the grid in the future. I think right now, sitting here, like, I don't feel completely done. So I'm like, I think I'll want to get back on the grid, but, uh, time will tell. And it's ultimately, I mean, it's again, it's, I'm not going to say, yeah, I can have every seat I want, but ultimately it's like my decision. If I want to be back and, and that fire and everything I expect to feel when the, the lights go out and I'm watching on the sidelines. Uh, yeah, that's, that's up to me to answer. Have,
0: have you at any point in the last four years thought, Phew looked over your shoulder seeing that, you know, Max has won 30 races since you left that team.
16: (laughs) I didn't even know. I mean, I knew, I knew it was (laughs) half or half of them this year. I mean,
0: have you looked over your shoulder at all and just gone how different things could have been?
16: I, I don't look at it like that because nothing is sure in terms of, you know, if I, okay, if I stayed there the last four years, could I say I would have had more podiums than I've had because what have I had, maybe three or something? Yeah, like I'm confident to say, yeah, I would have had more podiums than I've had. But you just don't know if, obviously at the time I felt like it was right for me and I I felt like I needed a change and I needed to kind of just remove myself a bit. So if I continued, would, would that urge have grown? Would I have become, let's say, more curious or less happy or whatever so it's not a sure thing that it would have been great if I stayed because obviously I I made the the move at the time because I felt like it was right for me so I don't look back and say man I shouldn't have but of course I can you know be honest with myself and say yeah look I took a little bit of a gamble on myself I still feel like the Renault one was was pretty good in terms of especially 2020. Like I was one of the best seasons I drove in F1. And to get the team back on the podium, I was very proud of that. But uh, obviously the McLaren one, even with the win, like the win was a high and I can't remove that. Like that was, I can't ignore that. But yeah, I could, you know, I can look and say, all right, yeah, I tried as well with this one. Yeah, it didn't quite work out. So you live and you learn, but I don't look back with regret. I just say, okay, it was a challenge I took on and and it didn't uh it didn't work out how how I hoped. Can we go into more detail about what's happened at McLaren?
0: Can you explain in layman's terms
16: what you weren't getting from this year's car in particular that you need as a racing driver? I think it was even though the rules changed so much, it was ultimately I, you know struggled for let's say my level of ability, at least in my eyes, I struggled in both years. And Ultimately, it's something fundamental with the car and myself that I don't get. It's a thing of feel, it's feedback, it's like queuing. What do you mean, it's queuing? Queuing? Oh, wait, maybe that's a sim term. Oh, okay. Wait,
0: what part of the corner?
16: <laughs> I just yeah. used a word, I don't even know what it means. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that in sim. Basically, the way you feel the car and, and is it doing what you expect? Is it rotating the way you expect? or, or is something so it's corner, a bit off? Is it corner entry? It all starts there you know what I mean? Because, you know, if you struggle with a corner on the exit, normally it's it's a product of what's happened through the corner that's put you in a position of, let's say, difficulty on the exit. So most difficulties start on the entry, maybe not all, but most. But it's, it's, it's not even like, I mean, it, it is kind of an entry thing, but it's more just like a feel and a limitation. And then you, I think the problem is, I also look back at My very first race with McLaren, I outqualified Lando. In Bahrain, I remember. And that was when I was still fairly green with the car, if you know what I mean. So I kind of wonder, I'm like, did we just kind of get lost along the way? And it was kind of like, did I then start to try too hard? And do we try to engineer it too hard and and get away from, let's say, my strengths and then try to drive the car a certain way, which, yeah, maybe a weakness for me um, and something that I couldn't really grasp. So... I don't know. It's um it's an interesting one, but I think ultimately like I I then will just accept that at least from my side, like I think on both ends we struggled, you know, in terms of also the team trying to understand what it was and how to then update it or improve it. But from my side I'm also like okay, look, I'm not perfect. Sure, I've got some weaknesses. This car happens to expose a few of them. It's a place for me to work on, but let's say I still obviously didn't find a way to Jill at one with this car, often enough.
0: It feels like the McLaren mystery is still puzzling Daniel. He's got a year to try and figure it out and maybe he'll have an epiphany while riding across America on his tiny motorbike. Check out the full episode for more on that. Daniel might make a return to Formula One one day, but it feels like we've seen the last of one of our greatest champions. In a cloud of triumphant tyre smoke after his Abu Dhabi donuts, Sebastian Vettel waved goodbye to Formula One. He won four world titles and 53 races, but there's so much more to Seb than the stats. There's the way he approached racing, his ruthless dedication to winning. There's the pride, lessons, victories, frustrations, and mistakes he experienced as he transformed from Wunderkind to Weltmeister. I asked Seb if there's one person without whom his success would simply not have been possible. He answered immediately and quite beautifully.
2: I think my wife, the, the sort of strength that she gave me in all, through all that time. I mean, we've been together since forever, uh, since I left school <laughs> and she left school. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the correct answer and the, and the fair and the right answer. Also because you know, Formula One life is very intense. We have a lot of busy schedule, a lot of races, lots of things to do, and I think it's very consuming mentally. But to um, love another person so much to uh, you know put yourself second in a way, and uh, give all the support you can over, su- over such a long time. In all honesty, I love her very, very much, but I don't know if I would have been or would, would be strong enough to, to do something like that. So for sure, I could name a lot of people now that helped me to get a seat and made, 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 made my racing possible. But um, I think deep down, you know, a lot of, I feel a lot of drivers have a lot of talent. We're all a bit different, but that's good. But uh, I think in the end, it boils down to just being in peace with yourself, being happy in your life and being able to extract that talent when it matters, keep your nerves together when it matters. And it's got a lot to do with balance in in life and life is bigger than those laps that you see on on the track. So I think the answer, the correct answer here is my wife.
0: That's a lovely response. How has Hannah helped you away from the track? Is it those low moments where she helps build you back up or?
2: Oh, there's so much. I think she's always been there, you know, always been uh, supportive. I mean, we um, obviously talk a lot to each other and about everything. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all those moments that are not glorious. It's all those moments that uh, you'd think they are not important, but I think there's a lot of them and um, they they do matter. So she kept me sane. <laughs> um, yeah, looked after me and, and uh, gave me the support so that I never felt alone, if you see what I mean. So... Um, and, and and felt loved. I think that's generally a, a great feeling to, to have. So it's hard to give you an example and say that she's been there and I, I was down and then she's you know doing she's been she's been doing this and that and to pick me up and bought me some chocolate or something like this. I think that's you know there's been these moments as well. But I think overall it's um yeah there's much more to it.
0: And does it help that she knew you before you became a mega star
2: and. Well, I, I, I think she's just the best person in this world, and I think she's the best person I can possibly be with. So, um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm also convinced that if I had gotten to know her later, it would have still been fine. So, um, I'm just happy that I met her so early. So, um, I didn't spend a great time looking for her. I saw a lot of tweets from people
0: who said they'd cried hearing Seb talk about his wife. I can see why, and I'm sorry if you're crying again now. But that's such a lovely answer, we just had to hear it again. He'll be spending more time with his family next year after 15 years of obsessing about Formula One. And in that time, he's raced with some of Formula One's modern greats. In our interview, he talks about Michael Schumacher, Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton, and in particular, about how an on-track clash with Lewis brought them closer together. Then there are his teammates who he's raced alongside. He got to know them as people. He got to study their technical data to work out what made them so good. And at Ferrari, he learned just how gifted Kimi Räikkönen
2: really was. I think Kimi is actually the biggest natural talent I've come across ever, just in terms of raw speed. I think, um, and it shows in the car obviously, but it shows also in any other form of car. I think switching, if, it, if there was a discipline of switching cars every day, after 10 days, Kimi will be lapping everybody else, just because it's just, it's just a natural. It doesn't, doesn't take time to adapt to the car, to what the car requires. You give him a steering wheel and he knows what to do. That's the sort of pressure. Sometimes you feel it's unfair. You need to get used to first and you know, get an idea of the track or the conditions, and for him it just, boom. Did
0: that make him infuriating as a teammate? Um, no, because
2: I, I, I think with him, I probably had the best relationship uh, out of all the teammates I had because he was just so straightforward. There was never an argument. If we crashed into each other, we talked about it, fixed like, what happened, maybe laughed about it. Um, it was my mistake. It was his mistake. But then there was never a question that anything could sort of yeah, shake up or, or destabilize the, the, I don't want to say bond, but the relationship that we, we had. And he's been probably the, also the one, when I came in, I remember he was so respectful from the day I walked in, You know, looking into my eyes, um, where with other drivers I felt, okay, I'm shaking hands and I'm saying hello, but actually the guy is not not present, he's uh, not here. So with people, I think Kimi has been exceptional.
0: And all good with Kimi, even after that Turn 1 crash at Singapore?
2: Oh, yeah, it was not a, it was, n- no, not a, not a problem. I think we never got upset with, uh, with each other. Vettel and Raikkonen, their names won't be on the entry
0: list for 2023, but they'll always be on the F1 World Championship trophy. Maybe we'll have them both on the podcast again one day to see how they're finding life after racing. Well, that's it for 2022. I hope you've enjoyed these reminiscences from the year just gone. And just because we're going to take a short break, please don't stop the conversation. I'd love to hear from you over the winter. Why not tell me who's been your favourite guest of 2022 and who you'd like to hear from in 2023? Let me know. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 beyondthegrid There's now plenty of time to listen to all of our episodes. Use the links in the description or just scroll through our extensive archive. And if you've enjoyed the show this year, please leave us a rating and a review on your podcast app. We love reading them. Now, you're a discerning bunch, and I'm sure you're aware that this podcast wouldn't happen if it weren't for some absolute legends behind the scenes. Most importantly, Chris browning Brant, and Karen Bevan. They both do a superb job pulling the show together every week. I'd also like to thank F1's video and social media teams for everything they've done for the show and Patricia Dydeck, our production executive who works so hard on all of our behalves. And thank you to you for listening. I hope you'll join me again next year for another season of interviews with F1's biggest stars. For now, though, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year. Until 2023, keep it flat out. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios.